Good evening. Good evening. Yeah. A joy and a wow. Maybe we don't need the mic. It is a joy and a pleasure uh, to be here with you, um, and we just want to extend our thanks, um, also not just for the invitation to be here, but for how you pray for us and care for us in the, the work that um, God has called us to in the Chicago Lane area. And I'm going to try to stand in this position so you can see the PowerPoint, so I hope I'm not blocking anybody's view uh, at this point. Um, but let me pray for us uh, before we take a look at what, uh, what God has to say to us this evening. Father, thank you uh, for this opportunity uh, to be here at um, FNF and uh, to uh, be here for the Global um, Ministry Weekend. And Lord, we uh, pray right now uh, as we uh, come to your word, Lord, we pray that you would uh, speak to us, Lord, uh, I know that I am uh, in desperate need uh, of your Holy Spirit to come and to empower, and Lord, we just pray uh, that you would use uh, your word uh, to inspire us, to equip us, and to reach out uh, to a world that desperately needs you, and we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. And I'd like to begin by telling a story of a relationship between our local church and uh, local mosque uh, in the Chicago land area. And uh, you know, living in Chicago as we do, uh, we have uh, many uh, wonderful uh, Muslim friends and, and Muslim uh, relationships there because uh, there's a, a pretty sizable uh, population of, of Muslims in Chicago. And if you are looking at this building behind you, uh, that is not just a prop. That is actually um, a Islamic Foundation York, which is in Libertyville, Illinois. Any any Illinoisans here besides me and my wife? Okay. Will Matt. Will Matt. Okay, so you probably know where that is. I do. All right. Well, this is right in your backyard. Well, not too far from your backyard. <laughs> <laughs> Chicago, everything. If it's, if it's not an hour and a half away from you, it's close. That's the way the Chicago area works. So, so anyway, the uh, imam who... Uh, leads this congregation. So the, if you're not familiar with some Muslim terminology, I'll be throwing some of that out tonight. Uh, but the imam is kind of equivalent to pastor. Uh, but his, the imam of this particular mosque has become a good friend of mine. And we met beginning of 2016, and the way it happened was a pastor friend of mine came to our church, and he said, uh, Mike, why don't we go and, and visit the mosque together? And my first reaction was actually a bit skeptical. I said, well, we can do that, uh, but to be honest with you, I've actually visited there a number of times, and I uh, actually took part in a, a Bible uh, Quran discussion group there, and you know, had a great time, it was a wonderful experience, uh, but really have not seen any kind of ongoing relationships, nobody to kind of get coffee with, you know, talk uh, about spiritual things with, and so I just thought, okay, we'll go together because um, I want to humor you, but I don't think much is going to happen. So I made a phone call to somebody I knew uh, at the mosque, set up the time, and we went, and lo and behold, the month before that we, we had arrived, they had just hired a new imam. And uh, I knew we were hitting it off when he asked, the first question he asked is, hey, do you guys like sports? <laughs> I said, you bet I do. So, and he himself is a second generation. Uh, so he grew up actually in Chicago. He's a huge Bears fan. So it's, it's wonderful. You go to uh, any of his classes at his mosque, he'll have his laptop on, up and have the big Chicago Bears wishbone <laughs> seat on the front of the laptop. It's great. I love it. 
Um, so I came home, you know, from this experience. We had, you know, got invited out to lunch later, you know, with all the, the uncles and everything from the mosque. Had a wonderful time. Came home from that. I told my wife, I said, this, this is great. We had this wonderful experience, this new imam. He's so open. He really wants to have a relationship with people from the outside. It's what we've been praying for. And my wife said, that sounds great. We should invite him over for Easter. And then I, being full of faith and the Holy Spirit, said, okay, well, I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> so I, I made a call and invited him. He said, we'd love to come. And so we uh, invited my, my pastor friend who had gone with me to the mosque. So he came and... Um, yeah, we had a wonderful time. One of the things of note uh, about this uh, particular uh, Muslim couple, his wife is what is called a niqabi. If you're not familiar with that term, that's someone who just wears the full face veil. You can only see her eyes. And what you would think, probably from that uh, experience, is you know, it's a very conservative couple, not very open to outside relationships. But I want to tell you, you will not meet a more warm, open, and gracious Muslim couple uh, than this one. And so uh, my, my uh, friend comes in, and one of the first questions he asks is, so what's Easter all about? You know, which gave us a great opportunity to read from Luke chapter 24 and share uh, about the resurrection account. My uh, pastor friend got to share about his dad's testimony and how his dad uh, walked with Christ and affected him and helped him to go into full-time ministry. And then, of course, um, if any of you who have uh, Muslim friends will know that um, uh, value for them is hospitality. And so they reciprocated and invited us to their home. And we had this ongoing relationship. And uh, eventually he asked me, he said, can I bring some of my uh, high school boys to witness a church service at, at, your, uh, at your home church? And I'd never had a Muslim person ask me that before. But I said, sure. And we were trying to go back and forth as to uh, when a good date would be for them to come. And finally, I just said, you know, why don't you come at Christmas time? Christmas time is a wonderful time. You'll we'll see a lot of traditions. You'll, you'll see why the birth of Christ is important to us. He said, that sounds great. Well, come Christmas time, I'll bring 12 high school boys. And now, can we go to the next slide, please? So, the day of expecting 12 high school boys. <laughs> and the car pulls into the parking lot. Some people from local mosque get out. Another car pulls in. More people get out. Another car pulls in. Some more people get out. You can see that. That's the top picture up there. We have 40 Muslims at our church for a Christmas service. And now, a lot of times, what you're told is um, do not invite Muslims to your North American church. It's not, it's not contextualized for them. They won't understand the message. They won't understand the worship. Two things they like the most were the message and the worship. <laughs> I stood that on its head for me. So I had a wonderful reception uh, for them. My, my wife uh, had organized that. Uh, had, had a great time of, of Q&A. And then later, just to keep the, the relationship going and build on the relationship we have with them, uh, my wife hosted a henna party. That's that second picture you see up there. And if you're not familiar with henna, um, some of you might be familiar with that. It's, it's the temporary tattooing that a lot of uh, women will do in um, India and Pakistan, places like before they get married. Uh, it's very beautifully done. Um, I've never had it. <laughs> I've seen it, my wife's had it. So. And then uh, uh, this past Christmas, we went to, uh, with the mosque to the Northern Illinois Food Bank and then did a uh, work project together where we packed uh, boxes of food 
uh, for, for hungry neighbors. And uh, one of my favorite parts of this, this whole relationship is, go to the next slide, please. This is a picture of my seven-year-old son, Andrew, and the Imam of our local mosque. You say there he's got his Cubs hat on. But one of the things I love about this picture, this is a picnic we had uh, at our house. And uh, my son, my middle son, Andrew, who loves the Bible, um, yeah, Christelle can tell you, because he was telling Christelle when we walked back about the story of David. Uh, Four stories. Four stories. <laughs> my son told, told Christelle. But, uh, so the imam actually invited my son to share the Bible with him. So Andrew got his Bible down, and he's sharing it from the story of Jonah uh, with the imam of our local mosque. And so why, why do I tell you this story? Other than about this is how God is working and some of the things that we're seeing God do. Uh, well, it is an example of how our, our culture, our wider culture, is becoming increasingly uh, religiously and ethnically diverse. And that's no, that's no secret to you guys here on a college campus. Uh, but it's, what's happening on a college campus is also happening in our wider society. And it points out something that is on God's heart. And that is that people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language would come to know him. All of us have a part in that work. And that's what we're going to see from our text today. Acts 17, 16 to 34. And this is the main point of the next one. That God wants to reach people from every culture through us. Now let me give a little bit of background about uh, the text before we jump in. So this is happening on uh, Paul's second missionary journey. And up to the point, this point in the book of Acts, uh, he's witnessed to, witness to many different types of people. Varying, people of varying religious backgrounds and worldviews. So he shared Christ with, with Palestinian Jews, people who worshipped in Hebrew-speaking synagogues, spoke the, the language of the Old Testament. He's preached to a group of people called the Hellenists. And you can start, you can just click through all the lists. There should be a, about four, four or five of them. So he's, he's also preached to a group of people called the God-fearers. And the God-fearers were a group of Gentiles who had adopted some, some aspects of synagogue life, so they were familiar with, with who the God of the Old Testament was. Um, then he is going to encounter one Roman official. And finally, in uh, chapter 14, Paul comes to a city called Lystra. And for the first time, he is going to encounter a group of people who are completely unfamiliar with who the one true living God. And now, again, chapter 17. We'll see this as Paul enters Athens. He will once again encounter a group of people who are completely unfamiliar with who the one true living God is. And we're going to see how God wants to reach people from every culture through us. So again, we're looking at Acts 17, 16 to 34. And what I'm going to point out are three Ramakal keys about reaching out cross-culturally. So the first one I would say is people in every culture need Christ. Let's take a look at verses 16 and 17 if you have the Bible with you. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, the spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So as our text opens up, Paul finds himself in an unexpected place. He's just been kicked out of two cities. Thessalonica and Berea for preaching Christ. And his companions tell him, you know, it's not safe for you. We need to send you somewhere else where you're going to be out of the reach of the people who want to persecute you. So he sends them to Athens. And so Paul gets there, and the first thing he notices 
is that the city is full of idols. As one uh, commentator put it, it was a veritable forest of idols. And then verse 16, as we just read, records Paul's response. That his spirit was provoked within him. And I know for many of us, myself included, when you're going into a new situation, a place that you're unfamiliar with, a worldview you may not have experienced before, it can be a little intimidating, a little overwhelming. But for Paul, even though he's distressed by what he's just seen and all these idols he's seen, he's not deterred. He is compelled by the love of Christ into action. And so keeping with his usual modus operandi, he goes to the local synagogue and marketplace, and he begins to preach to people that he usually encounters, the people we talked about before, the uh, uh, melanists and the Gothiers. But there's also a group of people here that Paul has not encountered before. And that is the Athenian philosophers. And this is a group of people, different worldview, different way of thinking about life, different way of viewing things than the people Paul normally ministers to. So Paul is going to have to start his presentation of Christ. He's going to have to adapt his presentation of Christ so that they can understand. And that is our second key point. Communicate Christ to people in a way they can understand. You can move to the next slide, please. We're going to take a look at verses 18 uh, to 21. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with them. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he is preaching Jesus in the resurrection. Then to quote of him, brought him there up, I guess, saying, may we know the new teaching, this new teaching that, excuse me, may we know this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, when Paul first encounters these philosophers, verse 18, they mock him. They call him a babbler. And this, this, this idea of, of a babbler is and they're somebody who kind of picks up ideas from random places and uh, kind of takes you know, a little bit from here, a little bit from here, and kind of weaves together their, their grand meta-narrative. And uh, probably in our day, it would be um, Someone who puts together uh, Facebook memes. Well, that's my generation, Facebook memes. Or you guys, Instagram memes. Uh, probably, we go forward a couple of slides. One's, one like this one. <laughs> Don't believe everything you read on the internet. Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> now, the reason that they mock Paul is they have no category for understanding what he's saying concerning Jesus and his resurrection. And this is demonstrated by the two main groups of, uh, in Athens at the time. The two main groups of philosophers. The Epicureans and the Stoics. And i just give you a little short bio of who these guys are. I think it's on the next slide. The Epicureans believe that the goal of life was kind of to enjoy pleasure. They believe that, you know, maybe there's some gods out there, but if they're out there, they have nothing to do with us. What we need to do is eat, drink, be merry, or tomorrow we die. So it might be kind of like the hippie culture of <laughs> On the other end of that spectrum are the Stoics. They prize the high sense of duty 
and commitment to morality. And they believed that God was some kind of uh, world soul, that God was, was in everything. And they probably really would have resonated with some uh, popular cultural sayings that we have, like, pull it up by the bootstraps, or keep a stiff upper lip if, if you're British. I like that one. Um, <laughs> when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. <laughs> I love that one. So these were kind of the two worldviews, the two ways of, of thinking about life that most Athenians were caught between. And as you can see, there are some fundamental differences between how these philosophers view God and the world and how the Christ that Paul preaches views God in the world. He cannot start in the same place that he does with those at the synagogue. He has to begin in a different place. And even though these guys, these philosophers, they mock him, they're kind of a curious crowd. They want to know new ideas, as we saw in verse 21. So they extend to Paul an invitation to the Areopagus, where they talk about these ideas, and they talk about these philosophies. And Paul accepts their, uh, their invitation. And let's pick it up in verse 22. And Paul, and Paul addresses them. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. But therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. You see, there was this idea in Greek culture at the time, you had, you had to keep the gods happy. So if you didn't keep the gods happy, something really bad could happen. And so that's why we talked about that forest of idols that we, we talked about before. That's why there were so many idols. But there was also one, just in case there was a, a god out there somewhere that we had forgotten about, that we did not give credit to. Here's your idol, to the unknown god. And using this reference point from their culture, Paul is going to pick up on this, and he's going to unpack to them who this unknown god is, who the one true living god is. And, and besides uh, being an apostle and writing a good portion of the New Testament, Paul had a trade. He was a tent maker. Now, my, my wife has told me, and I think we just saw a slide, if I'm not mistaken, before I got up here about the announcements, that in PCF culture, camping and outdoor activities are a big part of life. All right? <laughs> so backpacking was a big thing in her generation. But when I was a kid, uh, my family had, had a small tent. About three to four kids could fit in that tent. And our idea of, of roughing it was to set up the tent, put up, you know, put up the frame, put the uh, tent over the poles. And then we would get our black and white television with antenna. Probably not the one people understood what I just even said, or Bill and Debbie and my wife. That's probably that's okay. And so we would take that black and white TV with the antenna, put it in the tent, run an extension cord, because there's no Wi Fi at this time. Run an extension cord from our parents' house to the TV set, black and white TV set, and plug it in and watch black and white television in the tent. It was better than the cable color television in the house. I can't explain that to this day. But what I do remember about that tent is that after you set up the frame and everything that I just described, you also had four pegs that you had to anchor it to the ground with. Otherwise, you had a 
You have a flying saucer, and you take off, and you've got a big gust of wind. And so that, what Paul is going to do for the Athenians is he's going, to, he's going to construct for them a mental tent. Can we go to the next slide, please? And that mental tent, let me just click through, is going to have four pegs. And those four pegs are going to be uh, the creation, God's sovereignty over mankind, his nearness to mankind, and finally judgment. And take note that even though Paul never quotes the Bible once in this entire presentation, everything he says is informed by the Bible storyline. So let's take a look at what these four pegs are. Number one, the true God has created everything. Let's take a look at verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all to all mankind life and breath and everything. And we sung a song about this just tonight. That God is not served by human hands. And it's, it's Psalm 50, verse 12 says this. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Peg number two. The true God determines the places where people should live. Take a look at verses 26 and beginning of 27. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the bounds of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and hope they might feel their way toward him and find him. Now see, the uh, Athenians believed that somehow they just kind of popped out of the ground of their native soil of Athens. Um, you know, and you know, I, I, okay, I hate to break it to you. You know, it's end of the fall. We're heading into winter. I even saw today friends of mine posting pictures from where are in Chicago. Snow's already on the ground there. Not one of my favorite times of the year. But one of my favorite times of the year is when that snow melts. And you start to see the grass come up and, and uh, you know, the flowers come up. I love that time of year. Uh, but that's kind of the Athenians viewed themselves. They just kind of popped out of the ground. And Paul counters that it is literally God who decides where all the ethnicities of men are to dwell on all the face of the earth. It is no mistake that the Athenians were where they were at that time. There are no unrecognized or forgotten people groups by God. Not only does God determine the place where these people live, he also points these seasons and the exact time for them. The picture is that God is sovereignly in control of the affairs, affairs of men. And the reason that God has been so involved in placing men where they are, as we see in verse 27, is that they might know him. And these facts, no less true in our day. Again, in a college campus like this one, it's very evident. It's becoming even more evident in the larger culture around us in the United States. That we're becoming more religiously and ethnically diverse. And people are picking up from different worldviews, different backgrounds, becoming our neighbors, our co-workers, and our friends. Now, peg number three. The true God is first to mankind. Let's pick it up at the end of uh, verse 27. Now, he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine beings like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. 
So to illustrate his point, Paul quotes from Greek poets to show that God is near to his creation. And again, he's not endorsing that philosophy. He's not saying that it's wholly true. But the reason he can do this is Paul has a theology of creation. He recognizes that even though the Athenians are fallen because of sin, they still retain some original knowledge of who who the one true God is. So he is going to pick up on this, and if we are going to effectively witness to a culture that is growing in its ethnic and religious diversity, then we need to keep this in mind. Because these are starting points that we can use to begin a conversation with somebody who comes from a different worldview than we do. And I, I you know, mentioned earlier about our relationship with the local mosque that we have um, in, in Chicago. Um, a few years ago, uh, my wife had an opportunity to attend a women's function at, at a local Turkish Cultural Center uh, for the other Illinois in the room in Mount Prospect, <laughs> uh, close to O'Hare Airport. And this is a, this is also a community we've been involved with for a number of years, and we, we dearly love. They actually knew us before we had kids. A lot of them did. We've seen you know their families grow, we've seen our families grow, in their homes, they've been in our homes. Um, but my wife was sitting with one of these these ladies uh, that we've gotten to know, her family that we've gotten to know, and. Um, through the course of their conversation, they began talking about funerals, which led to uh, a conversation about the Day of Judgment. And the Day of Judgment is something that weighs very heavily on, on the Muslim mind and conscience. They're constantly thinking about how they can please God, how they can earn God's favor on the Day of Judgment. And because my wife had built a bridge to this woman's understanding, she was able to explain that on the Day of Judgment, she will stand before God. She will stand before the Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ will give her his perfect record. And that she can be absolutely sure that she can, she can earn heaven and she can earn salvation because of what Christ did, not because of what she had done. So these are points of contact we can use to introduce people to Christ. Peg number four. The true God will judge the world. Take a look at verse three. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul points out that judgment has not yet come on the world because of idolatry. And that the religion of the Old Testament was not one of broad proclamation of cross cultures. It was a, a come-and-see type of religion. But now that the Messiah has come, he has told people, he has told his followers, go into the ends of the earth and tell everyone about me. Now that God's Messiah has come, history is approaching its end, and God is going to pour out his wrath in judgment. Thus God commands all men everywhere to repent, so they won't fall under his wrath. God will judge the world through the living Christ, not through the lifeless idols of the Athenians. And a little later, in 1 Corinthians 15, oh, I'm sorry, I got up myself. And so it's at this point that Paul loses his audience because of his comments about Christ being resurrected from the dead. Now, in the Athenian mind, the spiritual world is good, and the material world is bad. So for Athenian, the Athenian team, they're thinking something like, Zombie apocalypse. That's what's going through their mind. A living corpse 
So I kind of like what this guy does. <laughs> so, but even though the Athenians stumble over this idea of resurrection, Paul doesn't say to them, well, wait, hey, stop, wait, no guys, I'm sorry. Uh, that's not what I meant. Come back. I want to say something that sounds a whole lot more pleasing than what I just said. He doesn't do that. He stands on the truth of the resurrection. And later, in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 15, Paul's going to go in depth as to why the bodily resurrection of Christ is so important. And that it was so essential to the Christian faith. Now, we don't have time to go into all the, the details of that chapter, so if you get time, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of my favorite passages in, in the New Testament. Uh, but the conclusion that Paul comes to is this. The resurrection is so central to Christian faith that if it did not happen, our hope in Christ is futile. What we have been hoping for, for eternal life, through his death on the cross and his payment for our sin, does not exist. And so not to leave us, us hanging at that point, at that hopeless moment, Paul says that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And this is why we can have hope, eternal life. To state that another way, as I've heard one Christian apologist say it, if the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ happened, Christianity is true, period. Now, in our day and age, that's not a popular message to preach. But it's not one we can compromise. It's one we have to stand on. And when we come to that point, we're just going to have to trust God for the breakthrough. This is his, his plan of salvation. It's not ours. Uh, as we see, he's the one in control. We can trust him, and we can trust his plan. So Paul's speech is brought to an abrupt end. We can only speculate how he would have concluded. But even in the immediate ending, people still respond. That's the third key idea, reaching out cross-culturally. People respond differently to Christ. We saw, and, oh, I'm sorry, let's take a look at verses 32 to 34. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So some mocked, in verse 32. They, in verse 18, began with mocking, and now they end with mocking. Reminds me of John 15, 18, where Jesus said, If the world hates you, then it hated me first. Some, you see in verse 32 as well, some will want to hear more. Like, yeah, that's, that's interesting. And let's get some coffee. Let's talk about that some more. I want to hear more about what, what you, this Jesus you're talking about. And then finally, some will believe. Uh, a few years ago, I received a uh, phone call from a Pakistani friend of mine. Um, and he and I had known each other for about uh, 12 years. Our relationship actually began when I was in seminary. Um, he was visiting a little area of town called uh, Little India. And uh, he and I struck up a relationship, and we get together probably once a week, you know, chat, have, have some chai. Uh, that's tea for those of you who don't um, really try it. Um, so, and, and you'll have ample opportunity to uh, share Christ with him and to explain the gospel to him. And he was always cordial, always open uh, to our conversations, but never really sensed he had much interest beyond that. And so I was very curious when, when he called me, out of the blue, uh, one time, he had moved away from Chicago, we had lost touch, um, 
So I didn't really know what was happening in his life. Um, but he gave me a call and wasn't able to pick up, so I let it go to voicemail. And the message went something like this. Mike, I need you to call me back. It's not urgent, but it is important. Please call me. So I eager to find out what was happening with my friend. I called him back. And he, he began, he said, Mike, I want you to know, I've started reading the Bible. The conversations we were having 10 years ago are now starting to make sense. Shortly after that, he put his trust in Christ. About a year after that, he was baptized. Some will believe. So what does this mean for us today? What are, how can we be a part of reaching out cross-culturally? What are, what are the ways that we can get involved in reaching people who don't think like we do or worship uh, like we do? Let me suggest just a couple applications. In the next slide, please. First, pray that God would bring someone from another culture or worldview, or and worldview, maybe I should say, into your life that you begin and minister and witness to. And I, I know, being here on a college campus, you have plenty of opportunity to do that. That is, that is not a, a difficult thing to do. Number two, keep in mind, reaching out cross-culturally, like any other kind of outreach, is done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And some of you right now are thinking, this is awesome. This sounds great. Mike, where do I sign up? Sign me on the dotted line. Others of you are thinking, this guy's crazy. And you think I'm going to do that? There's no way. And maybe I'll know. There's probably somewhere between those two opinions. But wherever you are at, let's just keep in mind Paul, who we just looked at. And how Paul was compelled to do what he did because of the love of Christ that dwelt in his heart. The love of Christ dwelt in his heart because of the Holy Spirit who was inside of him. Reaching out cross-culturally is done in the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that indwelt Paul, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, indwells you also. So it is God's plan. He is with us. And it is on his heart to reach people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you um, for this great truth, Lord, that you have created people in your image. You've created all people in your image. And you have put them all over the face of the earth. And Lord, you desire that people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language would come to know you. And Lord, uh, this may seem overwhelming to us. Uh, it may seem exciting to us. But Lord, um, it is your plan. We can trust you and we can step out in faith. And Lord, that you are working uh, to bring all men uh, to yourself. And we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus.